In this episode, we speak with Michael Fish, founder and CEO of American Securities. Based in New York with an office in Shanghai, American Securities is a leading U.S. private equity firm that invests in market-leading North American companies with annual revenues generally ranging from $200 million to $2 billion. American Securities and its affiliates have more than $26 billion under management. Originating as a family office founded in 1947, in 1994, American Securities opened its private equity investment activities to outside investors seeking attractive, risk-adjusted rates of return. Michael is a founder of American Securities and has been CEO since its inception in 1994. Before founding the firm, Michael was a partner in two private equity funds, a consultant in the Paris office of Bain & Company, and a professional in the mergers and acquisitions department of Goldman Sachs. Michael earned his undergraduate degree from Dartmouth College, where he is a member of the President's Leadership Council, and an MBA from Stanford University, where he has been a guest lecturer since 2006. I am your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks, RJ. It's a pleasure to be with you. So I'm very excited for this conversation. I used to work a long time ago, close to two decades ago with Merrill Lynch and American Securities was always one of the firms that we highly respected and, and always wanted to put our best foot forward whenever we interacted with American Securities. So I have a lot of respect for the firm. And as I was kind of reviewing the history of the firm, I had not known that the origins date back to 1947. So that's a really interesting and probably different aspect to American securities and maybe other firms out there. So could we go back to the origin story and then we'll kind of go into modern day? Well, first of all, thank you for those kind words. As long as we can stipulate that I wasn't alive back in 19... <laughs> so the origin story for us is the Rosenwald family, Julius Rosenwald in particular, is the patriarch came to control Sears, Roebuck & Co. around the turn of the century. And of course, Sears by the 1930s was the largest retailer in the country. It had a one-third market share in certain products. It was the first non-utility, non-railroad to be thought stable and important enough to actually be listed publicly. So it became public traded in the 30s. And I like to say created the Walton S. Fortune, the first half of the 1900s in America. Julius Rosenwald was an enormous philanthropist, and he had some very provocative notions like give while you live. He believed there was enough problems he could see and that one should try to solve those problems. And in his case, he was not interested in a perpetual endowment, which would be run by people with different values than his addressing problems when he saw problems today that should be addressed with that capital after he died. And he was a friend of Booker T. Washington and helped found and fund Tuskegee University, Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, Blue Cross and Blue Shield, and importantly, over 5,000 so-called Rosenwald schools to help educate primarily Black children in the southeastern United States with a partnership model where he would give the building, but the local community would have to buy the books so that everyone had skin in the game and a stake in success. In any event, his youngest son was Bill Rosenwald. Bill came to New York in the 1930s and after World War II, 
had separated his money and created his family office. And so American Securities Corporation was the first corporate-owned broker-dealer, I think, in the United States. They'd all been partnerships, but Bill had money and didn't want to lose it. And American Securities had a rich history in early investing. We tell the story that Rosenwald money drained Boggy Bottom, which allowed the Watergate complex to be built in Washington. When AT&T was buying Western Union, that would meant it would have two of the three cables under the Atlantic. And of course, before cell phones and other wireless communication, that meant two-thirds stake in all cross-Atlantic communications. And so the Justice Department said that must be sold. And we tell a story we negotiated for six years to pay $2 million to buy it and ultimately sold it to Xerox for three or 500 million when that was a lot of money, again, all before my time. But a rich history creating many companies, some still alive today, like Amatec, which is you know 17 billion of market cap, maybe 22 billion now, which was created by the Rosenwald family office. And I was lucky enough to join them to try to create a private equity business in 1993. And in 1994, we raised our first fund with the Rosenwald family as the lead investor and graciously putting up the working capital and supporting us. This is a great backdrop because I saw that you recently announced your citizenship report. And you know, typically we'll cover that in an interview with a private equity firm, but it will be like a soft mention. It seems like it's something really core. ESG is very core to what you do. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. Coming out of a family office, family office may mean different things to different people. But in my experience, in my conception, when I use that term, it's mean what you say and do it. Your handshake is your bond, honesty, thoughtfulness, and long-term, as well as giving back and treating people the right way. So we have always, always cared deeply in the companies we invest in on that they are good places to work for the people that work there. And so it's been decades now, every monthly package, financial package board book from every company, page number one is the safety page. Our injury stats going down, God forbid there was a fatality. How did that happen? How do we stop that? Just safety stats matter because you want people to have a safe work environment. And obviously, you don't want people to go to work and fear for their safety or their lives or their loved ones as their loved ones are walking out the door. So we've cared deeply about that. And then from the philanthropic legacy of the Rosenwalds, we have created years and years ago something called the American Securities Foundation. And we effectively give 10% of all management company profits to philanthropic activities every year. And so these principles, not investing in businesses that kill people so we wouldn't invest in bullets, not investing in cigarettes because they have bad health outcomes. This is going back. It's maybe obvious now. It wasn't so obvious 30 years ago. So we've always cared about those things, although we didn't use modern nomenclature. ESG would be one modern nomenclature. And it's still, as you know, controversial in some quarters because the right thinks one thing about it, the left thinks another thing about it. And so you get caught in tough debates. But the notion of being a responsible player in society and a good citizen, these notions of giving back and treating people well and investing with the highest principles of a thoughtful family office have always mattered to us. And so what used to be our giving back book, which we must have put out, I think, for the last 10 years, highlighting some of the things people have done with time, not just capital. We have days of service, we call them service days, local food banks here, greening up a park, a whole bunch of things like that. And likewise, uh, we have an office in Shanghai, China since 2006, service opportunities everywhere. So we've morphed these things into what we call a citizenship report, which tries to 
in keeping with the times, display, share what we're doing to the extent it's helpful for others or interesting to people we interact with. Yeah, the other aspect I thought that was really unique is you're very long-term oriented. And that goes to, in some cases, the fun life, but also how you look at your relationships with partners and internally and, and externally. And how have you been able to kind of sustain those long-term partnerships over such a long period of time? And I, I presume that plays into how you've been able to grow the firm over the years in such a consistent manner. Uh, so RJ, all really important and material points. So firstly, our product is the ultimate commodity money. And so if we're going to perform for our investors, it's only going to be our people and our investment philosophy and the processes that we implement. And so on the people side, again, we care about long-term relationships. We care about acting properly and being a good partner to all constituents, investors, management colleagues and portfolio companies, lending partners, all of the many service providers, accounting, legal, consulting, just everyone we come into contact with. And with respect to companies, we have always believed that we should always be thinking about building companies. So we tend to buy the market leading company. And then we want to believe that we have resources to help that management team go from good to great or great to greater. And the guiding philosophy is always be building a better company. If we're building a better company, that is thinking long-term and the liquidity event or the exit, whenever that happens, will take care of itself. But never have we, for example, turned down a CapEx request at a board of any company that I'm aware of because we were thinking of selling the business or cutting back on working capital or temporarily having a riff in Salesforce because it may look good for short-term earnings, but be bad for the long-term. We're always thinking of being a good long-term partner and building better businesses. And if it makes sense to hold a business longer, we're happy to do that. And if management is looking for liquidity to achieve their personal objectives, we're, of course, wanting to support that in some way, shape, or form that's consistent with great outcomes for our investors. And one of the great joys, really, is the people side of the business. There are CEOs back from our first deals 25 and 30 years ago who've invested in every single one of our subsequent funds and are still great friends of the firms, come to firm events. Building those long-term relationships is one of the great joys of the business. And, uh, you know, you invest across a number of sectors. I'm curious, like over time, how the mix may have changed in terms of one sector being a little bit more pronounced in the portfolio versus another sector. Has it evolved? Has it changed much? No, not really. So we've always believed in buying the number one market share player in its particular niche. And for the last 15 years, those companies have a node, which is 100 to 150 million of existing EBITDA. Some are a little bigger at purchase, 200 or more, and some now are over 600, 700 million of EBITDA. But the node is buying companies that are 100 to 150 million of EBITDA, all U.S. headquartered. And the mix has really been the same. We've roughly invested 60% of every fund in industrial companies, packaging, chemicals, whatnot, widget manufacturers, and the rest is service, consumer, and some healthcare services. And it's pretty consistent, actually, across every fund, not necessarily by design or by fiat, but that's just the number of investments that we end up populating in the dollars per second. Well, you know, when we take a look at some of these large asset managers and how their portfolio may shift into other sectors, say technology, does that have implications or just broadly what's happening in the macroeconomic environment and across industries? Does that play into how you focus in industrials? It certainly plays, but it's very different for every company. We have, in addition to an investment team of roughly 50 people now, we've got 
even more. We've got 55 plus full-time professionals in what we call our resources group. These are functional operating resources in purchasing, procurement, IT, CHRO functions, CFO functions, strategy, including our office in Shanghai, China. And these men and women, I like to think, are, are a full quiver of arrows. And on our investment team, we look at each business and think, what can we help them be better at? Or where do we have resources where they haven't yet developed resources and pull those arrows to help? So it's really a little bit of everything. And so specifically to your question on technology, probably like many other investors, we have found very productive ways to deploy digital marketing, to deploy now AI in certain functions in certain online industrial businesses. But fundamentally, we're buying the industrial business and where it makes sense applying technology, which has pretty much been universally margin enhancing, revenue increasing. So it's been good, but we don't have an enterprise software investment team per se. We have data science in our resources group, which helps in digital technology, which helps apply that stuff. But that's how we're approaching it. And so we're certainly very appreciated today with so much money that's gone into tech and software really from nothing to maybe 30, 35% of total fundraising in, in private equity to be true to our knitting in industrial businesses where we think we have advantages in sourcing and execution and relationships, as well as consumer and services to stay focused on that. And we are. Yeah, we talked a little bit about the kind of philosophy around the firm and touched on the vision a little bit. I'm always curious to hear about the culture. There's someone who I think very highly of at your firm, David Musicant, who I actually had the pleasure of getting to know close to two decades ago, but he's just a wonderful person. And, you know, it strikes me that you probably have a firm filled with wonderful people. Can you talk about the culture at American Securities? Well, I hope that's all true. Certainly, David's a fabulous person and decade plus colleague. He runs our investment development and capital markets activity and does a fabulous, fabulous job now joined by Matt Fishman, who just joined us to co-lead that because we just got bigger and bigger. And so we need more people doing great things. Culturally, we have almost no turnover and virtually no voluntary turnover. So we're doing something right. And part of it, as you say, is just hiring good people. And so within that rubric of hiring good people who enjoy what they do, I like to say happiness is operating at the intersection of this Venn diagram, which is what someone's really good at what they want to do, which is not always what they're really good at, and what the firm needs them to do to succeed. And the good news is it's a big world out there, and we don't have that many people finding that white space in the middle of that, that intersection of that Venn diagram. It's really not that hard. And we take a very patient approach to helping people find that. And when it's an existing position, it's kind of easy, say, on our investment team, because there's a logical progression and mentorship that goes on. And when it's in our resources group, these are often new functions. And amazingly, they've almost always worked out. We find that white space with each woman and man who joins us there, and it works out really well. But we care about culture, and we think about it a lot. Our CHRO and Chief Operating Officer, David Maui, has, again, been with us a very long time and spends a lot of time putting in the scaffolding, the infrastructure to make sure we're doing that. Because as I've observed over my career, scale conspires against intimacy. So if you are successful and you grow your scale, by definition, that means your meetings are bigger, the number of people that you're interacting with are bigger, and you might have seen this at Merrill. And people really crave intimacy. Intimacy means you're working with them all the time or in meetings with them all the time. You know if one deal is going well or badly, if they've got an issue at home or with an aging parent, and you can kind of 
care about them and they can feel cared about. And when that meeting is no longer three to five people, but now 25 people, that level of intimacy doesn't exist. So we're always trying, I like to say, to get back to where we've been, to intentionally build intimacy into our work groups and our work life so that people feel like they're understood, they're individually cared about, and it's not just some big amorphous organization, which now with 175 people, really the largest team in private equity devoted to these size companies in the US, you got to work at it. And David Maui and others and culture carriers like David Muscat, you mentioned, really help us get back to where we've been or stay where we want to be. If you had to state one key insight into how to build a successful private equity firm, what would that be? Well, that's hard. I'd say head, heart, and luck, just three off the top of my head. You got to be delivering for investors or you don't get the chance to play again. So your investments have to work out at some level, but then you have to have the heart so that people you're working with, the culture, if you will, you want to attract great people, you want to keep great people, and you want to have a strong internal culture. And then honestly, you got to be lucky because if you could pick some sector, if you were just one sector focused investment group, for example, and that sector had a 10 or 20 year decline, you may be out of business. So luck in many forms cannot be understated. The growth in private equity has been tremendous over the last 35 years. No one thought it would become an industry 35 years ago. Certainly I didn't, but many of those firms are not around. There's maybe only one firm really that existed in 1985 that's still around as a leading private equity firm. Many others morphed and a few others may be around, so maybe it's three, but it's really a small number. So the industry grew, but it grew unstably with new entrants and people leaving. So you got to get those three right to be around for a long time. I want to go back to this point of no turnover. Is it that your superpower is just identifying talent? Uh, you know, I don't know any superpower, and it's it's low turnover, not no, but it's really really small turnover. And I think it's it's hiring good people that are team based, and then continuing to enjoy being able to work together because the investment success for investors exists. Finding growth opportunities and renewing opportunities and loving the people you work with that keeps people coming together. There was once the coach of the U.S. women's track team, and they were training at Duke University. And someone I know stopped in and said, it must be great to coach the best female athletes in the country. And the woman looked at my friend and said, oh, these aren't the best female athletes in the country. They're really good female athletes who are willing to work really hard to be better. And so it, if I can extrapolate, we find really good people who want to keep getting better and work together at it all the time and have a flywheel to get better and better. And I think we've done a pretty good job of that, but no superpower in perfect recruiting, I promise you. Well, we're running out of time. I always have two standard closing questions. One is, can you tell us about a person who has had a big impact on your life? Wow, there's so many. I've been blessed by many people who took an interest in me and tried to mentor me, but I can't be sitting here and talk to you and not always think about Charles D. Klein, who's Chuck to me and everyone here. Chuck was the Rosenwald family's chief investment officer, financial advisor. He chose to partner with me and we set up American Securities together. And he was an enormously influential and positive force in my life. And he retired about 15 years ago and sadly passed away in 2019. But I always think about Chuck. I'm looking at a picture of him now in my office because I like looking at him every day, even though he can't talk back to me. 
and he was uh, probably one of the most, if not the most mentorish second father figure that I've been blessed to have. Last question. Can you tell us about a charity cause or other endeavor that you're passionate about? Well, you know, the problems of the world are so great and the opportunities for service are endless. I think about my philanthropic life with time as healthcare, religion, human rights, international, and food insecurity in New York. So very active in food pantries and food insecurities in New York. I think that's really important. Healthcare, you know, friends need doctors, colleagues need doctors, and it's intellectually interesting. So I'm very involved with Northwell, Northwell Health, which is the largest hospital system in the state of New York. And for years, I was on the board of Human Rights Watch, and now with the Atlantic Council, a Freedom and Prosperity Center, which basically factually makes the case that the best outcome for all people, and especially the poor and the marginalized, is countries that are operating at the intersection of free markets, free and fair elections, and property rights, respect for human rights, rule of law. And that leads to better economic outcomes for the poor and the marginalized, and actually less income inequality. Fantastic. Well, wanted to thank you again, Michael, for taking the time. You've been very generous by spending a little bit with us. My NOR audience will find this very insightful. Thank you. Well, it's nice to meet you. And thank you for your kind words, RJ. Great to be together.